Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, the first 24 verses. And so again, you can get this on the app. The PowerPoint slides are there. You can look at them later if you happen to not have a smartphone with you or a tablet. Jesus is now going to celebrate what we find in Scripture as the last Sabbath before he goes to Jerusalem to give his life for us. And it's interesting to me that he's invited to a dinner. And so the title of this morning's message is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Now, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember that incredible movie, quite frankly, where Sidney Poitier was, was robbed of an Oscar. He should have gotten one for Best Actor. Catherine Hepburn does get one, but the, the plot is this. It was during a time... In, some of us, we, we tend to think, you know, maybe along the lines of what's being put forth in the media today. But it was not that long ago that interracial marriage was illegal here in the United States. And in fact, until the case before the Supreme Court, Loving versus Virginia in 1967, June of that year, uh, in 17 states, it was still illegal for a white person and a black person, an African-American person, to marry each other. But that was settled. And furthermore, it's not just settled law. It's settled in the heart of God. God has no problem with us of every tribe and tongue and nation being wed together and being beautifully joined as couples and having wonderful children that are of mixed race. God invites everyone to his supper. He is willing that none should perish, but that all should come. And as Jesus now comes to this dinner, he is going to confront what still exists in our world today. And that is people who refuse the grace of God. Who purpose in their hearts to be divisive and to hold people outside of God's grace. And so Jesus is invited to dinner. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that you have set us free by grace, through faith, that we have the capacity, the wonderful joy of being your kids. Lord, that you have joined us together, every tribe and tongue and nation, every people, in every place. And Lord, you're the God of bringing together, not the God of division. And so we pray that as we open your word, that you would help us to learn from it, that you'd bless us with your presence, 
speak to us as your family. As we turn our attention towards the table, help us to remember the cost of our grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on a Sabbath day, that they watched him. That's an interesting phrase. It's used only twice in all of Scripture, both times by Luke. They spied on him. They were maliciously looking to find fault with Jesus. And here's why. The the Pharisees were certainly aware of who God was. And in fact, the Jewish people had had an organized religion for some close to 1,500 years at this point in time, whereby they understood God's character, his nature, God has spoken to them, given them the prophets, the law. They had an opportunity to actually know God at a very personal level, and yet they chose to keep God at arm's length. They believed in a legal transaction. And while it's true that grace is also a legal transaction, Christ died for us and paid the price for our sin, we are justified in that way. He's redeemed us, paid the price that we might be saved. The Lord does not relate to us any longer by the law. He relates to us by grace. His unmerited favor. We still live lives that are well-pleasing, But the law could never save anyone. The law could point us to exactly what the problem was, how bad off we really were. And ultimately, Jesus is now confronted by the Pharisees once again in this issue of, are you saved because of what you do, or are you saved because of who you know? Are you saved by the law and law-keeping? Are you saved by grace and through faith? And so Jesus is now going to address this group that is a part of the Sanhedrin, the synedrion in, in Greek. And it means to assemble or sit together. The apostle Paul was a member of the great Sanhedrin. And so this was the very highest ruling group. So every town, every place that there was a major population of Jewish people, they would have a group of elders, normally 20 to 24, that would sit together and they would decide matters of the law, specifically God's law. This man decides that he's going to have a Sabbath celebration. He's going to celebrate Shabbat in his house. And so Jesus gets invited. Jesus was a rabbi. He was known as a teacher. This wouldn't have been unusual. But notice that they're spying on Jesus because Jesus is doing stuff that they don't agree with. Jesus is healing people of their infirmities. Jesus is setting people free who've never been inside of a synagogue in their life. Jesus is touching people whom they deemed unworthy. Jesus is allowing the deaf and the dumb and the blind and the sick and the tormented 
and the totally unworthy to come to him and to touch him. And he touched them back. This is during the second temple period. And so Jesus would have had no trouble finding a synagogue. He would have had no trouble finding some religious rulers, and they had no trouble finding him. And so as they look at him with sharp intent, as they practice religious law, as they hold out their standards, their man-made standards, ultimately they would even do this to one of their own. You know him as Paul the Apostle. At the time he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And he was converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And they were doing the same thing to Saul. He'd come in contact with these Christians, these people who now claim to have a relationship with God, and they didn't need the law. They didn't need the priest. They had a personal relationship with God. And so they set a trap for him. And that trap was really twofold. And it will be, and we'll see it, and behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Now, I want you to understand, this is a fairly serious condition. It wasn't a specific medical diagnosis. This man had some appendage or appendages or perhaps his whole body uh, was prone to collect fluid and normally that caused arms to hang low or perhaps their legs to bulge forward or their back to be bent over. We've already seen a woman who couldn't stand up that had the same basic condition that Jesus touched and finally she could look up and see the sunrise or the sunset or her children's faces. And so this man, it appears that this ruler actually sets Jesus up. Because it would not be normal that someone who had these things, because from a Jewish perspective at that time, they believed that people who had these types of problems were cursed of God. That there must be something going on in their life because God surely wouldn't give someone who's walking right with him a difficulty. Can I tell you that that's worked its way into our culture still to this day? We have people wandering around that actually believe in Christian karma. And it's just like, well, he just got what is coming to him. You know, God finally got him. Yay! You know. So he must be sending somewhere, otherwise he would have never got COVID-19. We're, we're prone to think that if God does good things, that God's blessing us. And if God does bad things, that God's against us or cursing us. When in fact, Scripture doesn't teach that at all. It teaches exactly the opposite. That God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. And the rain is a sign of his goodness. That good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. People who love the Lord die every day of horrible things. People who are fully committed in the right relationship with the Lord have all kinds of heinous problems. Their businesses are subject to failure like everyone else, and vice versa. People who absolutely do not know the Lord and don't love the Lord, in fact, they're anti-God, sometimes live lives that seem to be completely free of any type of difficulty. You see, those things are simply the circumstances of life to which we're all subjected. 
But from the perspective of these men, there could only be one reason this guy had a problem. It's because he had a problem with God. Don't get caught in that trap. Don't get caught in that trap. Jesus was ready for the trap, and so he sprung it on them. Even though they were lying in wait, Jesus was more than up to the task. Verse 3, And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I love this. They kept silent, and he took him and healed him and let him go. You, you talk about spring in a trap. You see, here's the problem. It was not unlawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath. It was quite okay with God. The problem was that from this person's perspective, this ruler in the synagogue, they considered it work. Church, if you ever go to a church that considers it work to touch people and heal them on a Sunday, run. Or on a day of service, run. Of course God's okay with healing anyone, anywhere, at any time, and it's never work. It, it's a work of the Lord, if you want to look at it that way. But it's not work in the perspective that these guys were saying, well, you know, you had to touch him. When ministry becomes work, it's time for that person to get out of ministry. Shouldn't be in ministry if it's work. And so Jesus is going to spring this trap. He's going to turn the tables on them. And I want to tell you, I have talked to an awful lot of people that get into some very crazy understandings of how the law in the Old Testament and our New Testament grace interact one with another. And probably many of you have bumped into these people as well. And they'll tell you you need to be a vegetarian or a vegan, and if you worship on any other day than Saturday, you're in trouble with God. And I, I had some dear friends. We, we lived up in the mountains. We were very close to Loma Linda University and the hospital that's associated with it, which is Seventh-day Adventist, and they believe in keeping kosher, basically. Certainly vegetarian. They also believe that you can't worship God on any other day than on Saturday. And if you do, it's not a true worship service. In fact, they believe if you worship on any other day, you're not saved. And so I would get into these conversations. I actually had a, several of them that attended the church. And, you know, and I'd talk to them. i said, where do you get this stuff? Have you read the New Testament at all? Jesus was constantly doing this very thing, trying to tweak the ear of the religious leadership. He sprung that trap on them. And so Jesus does so. Notice verse 5. And then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that's fallen into a pit, would not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? The answer is, well, we'd all pull him out on a Sabbath day because it's probably the most valuable possession that we own. Of course they would pull their... They're not going to just sit there, well, bummer on you, man. Guess you got to die. 
<laughs> now notice this. Why would they not do that to themselves? Because they don't want to lose any money. So for them, it's an issue of money. They would have to replace the donkey or the oxen. Interesting, there are some commentators that believe that the word translated donkey there is son, and sometimes our sons can be donkeys, but I don't think that's actually a good translation. But imagine if it was your son that fell into a pit. What are you going to do? Same applies, doesn't it? Of course you're going to pull your child out of a pit. Well, you know, God's got a way of working things out. It's like we sit there and read these words and you, have, you kind of have to do what you're doing and that's chuckle a little bit. It's like, why didn't they get this? This is how hard our hearts can become. We can get so caught up in our legalistic ways, our, our series of rules and laws of this is how God works and this is how he does not work, that we forget that we don't know everything. Now, I'm not saying God's not holy. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He is absolutely, perfectly holy. And he loves us in that holiness. But he also recognizes who we are and that we're broken. And so he deals with both things simultaneously. He loves us in our brokenness. He wants to change us. He wants to mold us. He wants to shape us. He wants to heal us. All these things he wants to do. But don't limit the power of God to where God can do it or on what day God can do it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. He can accomplish anything, anywhere, at any time when he chooses to do it. Amen? Why is that important? Because eventually, if you don't see it that way, then you will confine God to how you understand him. You'll confine God and his workings and what he can do and why he does it to simply what you can know and what you can understand. This is fatal to faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's fatal to your faith if you limit God to what you personally can understand about him. Because his ways are above your ways. They're higher than my ways. I can't even know the ways of God in, in totality. I know some things about God. I spent a vast majority of my adult life studying God. Reading his word, teaching his word. And I can tell you he still blows me away. I said, Lord, I can't believe you did that that way. I, I'm sure you all have had the same exact experience. Any of you had people that you know got saved that you're like, that person's never getting saved. It's not happening. They're going straight hell. Matter of fact, the Amtrak train runs right to where they're going. And then you've got other people, it's like, man, they grew up in a Christian home and they had all the right things in their right neighborhood. They have everything given to them and they are as heathen as the day is long. And you're like, how does that work? I found something out a long time ago. You know, God doesn't call me every day. He doesn't check in with me. He doesn't say, Jeff, well, what would you do? 
he's God. And he chooses to do some things that I'm like, mm, I don't know why he did that. I don't know why he worked in that person, not in that person. I don't know why he healed that person, not this person. I don't know. I only know a few things about God. In light of all that could be known about him, I don't know much about God. That's an admission, and not because I haven't tried to know, not because I haven't studied. He is so infinite in what he does and why he does it that I will never know those things. My little pea brain is not capable of understanding that level of, of knowledge and wisdom and capacity. And so here Jesus is invited rudely to this social function. Notice verse 6. They could not answer him regarding these things, so he told a parable to those who were invited. Now, I love this, and we'll dig into this in a couple of weeks. Why does Jesus speak in parables? He actually tells us in Matthew's gospel. We'll save that for another time. But it's just a story, and it's a simple one. And when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, so here's the deal. Eastern hospitality, if you go to almost any country in the Middle East, hospitality is expected. It, it, it's not something that you kind of sort of should do. It is expected that you will be hospitable. Doesn't matter whether that's Jewish, doesn't matter whether that's Arab, if you go to a Middle Eastern country of any kind, hospitality is expected. That was true in Jesus' day. And so when someone came into your house, you were required, in essence, if you were a citizen of any standing whatsoever, to be kind and be gracious and to offer the best seats to the people who are your guests. And so Jesus is an invited guest. But what they're doing here is they're kind of having a little bit of a rugby scrum. They're running around trying to get the best seats. And so why is this important? If you have your phone out, you can see I put up a, a photo of a biblical triclinium, which is a three-sided table. It was in the shape of a U. The center was left open. That's where servants came. And there were three seats on each leg. Each one had a prime seat, the center seat, and the center center seat was for the very most honored guest. So when you look at the Last Supper by Michelangelo, you'll notice that Jesus is in the middle. Well, they didn't sit at a long table. They sat at three tables, and Jesus would have been in the middle because that was the seat of honor. And next to him was Judas. Remember that? You, you see, there was a reason people sat where they sat. The host would normally sit at the number nine seat, the one furthest away from everything. They would have to walk the furthest. It was a matter of honor. And here these guys are rushing around trying to grab, they're trying to grab their, wait, that's a center seat. It's like, I should sit there. 
It's like, what are you doing in my seat? It's kind of like, the, like a Dodger game. You got those people that buy seats on the upper deck and they try and get down lower. And you come down to get to your seat, you know? It's like, what are you doing? It's like, get out of my seat. It was you, wasn't it? That's what they're doing. It's like, man, I paid for one in the upper deck. I'm going to sit right here in the middle. So they're sitting at these, they're trying to push and shove and scramble to get at the chair of honor. They're trying to get to the best seat. And so Jesus begins to tell them a story. They were supposed to sit where they were assigned. They were supposed to go where they were supposed to go. And so they're all glaring at Jesus to see what he would do. And so Jesus speaks again to them. When you're invited by anyone, it says there in verse 8, to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. Can you imagine what they're thinking? They've all scrambled around to grab the middle seats on all three sides. Sorry. No, they didn't even think about it. They're like, well, I deserve to sit here. Don't do that. Don't sit down in the best place. Lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. Jesus says something amazing in Mark chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. He who desires among you to be the greatest shall be the servant of all. The ninth seat. The final seat. The last seat. The one that's closest to the serving. That's what the ninth seat was. You don't want to take that seat after being forced out of a seat of honor. You want to take that seat voluntarily because you love everyone else. You want them to sit in the seat of honor. You prefer them over yourself. You look at them and say, honor them, don't honor me. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. And when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. And that's us in our salvation experience, isn't it? Sometimes I'm, I'm mind-boggled that one day I'm actually going to get into heaven. Now, I understand what I'm saying. I, I recognize that we don't know exactly what's going to happen when we get there. You know, we have all kinds of fanciful stories. Of, you know, poor Peter's always stuck at the gate. Yeah, it's like he's got to check everybody in because he was a knucklehead while he was here, so you kind of expect it. But as you're waiting to get in, you're standing in line, you know. It's like we, we have all these kind of fanciful things in our heads. But I'll tell you this, I'm going to be real glad just to get in. Amen? Amen. If God wants to move you up a little higher and get you a better seat, praise the Lord. But to just get in is a good thing. 
We're so worried about what seat we sit in here on earth. And we forget these seats don't matter. You know, you're sitting here today, we're outdoors, and, and you know, it's a little foggy this morning. <laughs> Look, you're going to heaven. Amen? Amen. Go up higher, and then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. You see, when you get to heaven... Where you sat here on earth is not going to matter. Amen? You're going to be in the presence of the Lord where there's fullness of joy forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You're not going to be going, oh, I wish I'd had a better house in heaven. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a mansion for you that where I am you might be also. If he says so, he does so. Amen? For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Anybody want to be in a better place than you are right now? Then humble yourself before the Lord. That's the path. The path is not beating other people. The path is being humble, meek, as Jesus was. Jesus didn't walk in. Can you imagine Jesus? Because we're kind of all into the name tag, name badge thing. Jesus walks in, you know, and the Pharisees, hi, I'm Pharisee Bob. (laughs) Jesus comes, hi, I'm the son of God. (laughs) He could have had a pretty good name tag, amen? But he didn't. He didn't. He came in as a servant. And he will be exalted when you get to heaven Man, can you imagine? Who sits where isn't going to matter when you get there, amen? You're going to be going, I'm just glad I'm at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord, that you paid the price that I could be here. And then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives nor rich neighbors, lest they invite you back so you would be repaid. He says, look, you, you, you send out invitations hoping you get something out of it. That's not how the kingdom works. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. It doesn't matter what place you take in the kingdom, ultimately, as long as you're in the kingdom. And the same price was paid for all to get there. Jesus had to shed his blood and his body had to be broken for each of you. He paid the ultimate price. He gave you the most precious gift that could ever be given to prove to you how much he loves you. Amen? So this whole thing of I got to be, you know, first in the kingdom. Look, being last in the kingdom is a really good thing. As long as you're in the kingdom. Amen? I'm not suggesting you shouldn't try and do as much as you can for the Lord. But what I'm saying is you're not getting to heaven because you were better than the person sitting next to you. You're getting to heaven because Christ died in your place on Calvary's cross. He shed his blood for the remission, the remission of your sin. The absolute abolition of the stain against you with his own blood. The transaction of the lawful thing that happened was there was a price on your head 
And Jesus said, I'll pay it. And he paid it. He said, all you need to do is believe and receive that I paid the price for you and you can go to heaven. And then Jesus goes on in verse 13. When you invite people to your place for supper, invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Church. That's the real church. It's made up of poor and lame and maimed and blind. And that's me. And I pray that you see that that's you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he hath made you alive in Christ Jesus. You weren't just maimed, you were dead. You weren't kind of sort of messed up. You were dead. You weren't just kind of on the wrong road. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Why is that important in this context? Because Jesus is saying, look, if you invite somebody to the supper, invite them with the right heart, with the right mind, with the right understanding. Invite everyone. Jesus is saying, invite everyone. Don't make up your own rules about who gets saved and who doesn't. I've had people come and say to me things like, well, that person will never get saved. I'm sure glad Jesus didn't say that about me. Because I'm pretty sure there was reason for the Lord to go, he's not getting saved, not happening. This isn't going down. And you will be blessed, verse 14, because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid the resurrection of the just. You realize that one day you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to give an account for everything that happened on this earth. Every word spoken, every act undertaken, good or bad. It's primarily for the purpose of reward. It's laid out for us there in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. But Jesus in Matthew 6 said, So that you do not appear, in verse 18, before men to be fasting, but to your Father who's in a secret place. Your Father sees what you do in secret and will reward you openly. God knows. You don't have to tell everybody else what's going on. You don't have to tell them how holy you are. You don't need to run around going, well, I did this, I did that. God knows what you did. If you do it with the right heart, it's reward worthy. If you do it with the wrong heart, no matter how good it is, it's not reward worthy. That's why Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. He says, look, do your, do your good deeds in secret. It's not about who sits where. It's about us being like him. These guys were notorious for their pride, for their arrogance, for wanting to be in the right seat, the right place, the right hand. So everybody would know, oh, you must be really holy. Holy. 
The only, ring, the only thing that makes us holy is Christ in us. Amen? The only thing that makes us holy is Christ in us. That's our hope of glory. It's not because I've traveled and done work in the mission field. It's not, it's not because I happen to have the responsibility and the blessing of pastoring this incredible church. It isn't because I have studied God's word and know pretty good amount of what it says. It's because Christ died for me personally. He shed his blood on Calvary's cross. Everyone's worthy of that. That's why he says, look, invite the lame, invite the blind, invite the broken. It's what happened in your own salvation experience. Verse 15, and now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things and said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now I'd love to tell you that that's an admission of understanding, but it's really actually boastful. He's the, the tenor of the original language is that he's saying, well, you know, I'll be right there. <laughs> be careful. You won't get to heaven because you deserve it. You'll get to heaven because he is worthy. You'll you get to heaven because of what Christ did for you, not what you did for him. As long as we're on this earth in these bodies, in that sense, I'll never be perfectly worthy. My flesh isn't ever going to be worthy. My mind won't ever think perfectly. I want it to. I pray that I'm making less mistakes today than I was when I was a new believer. And I'm pretty sure that's actually true. But I'm going to get to heaven in spite of the fact that I was maimed and blind and unworthy because he died for me. This man needs a sharp lesson and maybe you need that lesson. I'm going to have the elders begin to pass out the communion team to pass out the elements of communion. Please hold them uh, to the end. And hear this story because there's three excuses. And I think they're helpful. Reasons that we might look at our own selves and not remember that Jesus is the guest at every meal, everything, everywhere. Sometimes I think that we almost reach that place to where we think we've arrived. I, I pray that's not you today. There's going to be one time in all of eternity that you should think that you've arrived, and that's when you see Jesus. Face to face. Amen? Until then, we're all works in progress. Amen? We're all on that journey of sanctification. In verse 16, he said to them, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. And so you can see that Jesus is now going to give them a parable. And he's going to give three excuses, if you will. Three wrong ways to understand 
what's important in life. Because what's important in life is represented in the communion elements that are being passed out to you right now. What's important in life is that you be found in Christ Jesus, that you've committed your life, that you've received his grace, that his mercy abides on you. It's not about at what seat you sit at the table. Notice verse 18. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. So this is a religious gathering. It's well-learned men in what they would have known at the time as our Old Testament, principally the five books that we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And the first said to him, I bought a piece of ground, and I have to go see it. I ask, to ha I ask you to have me excused. In other words, I, I don't want to do this thing your way. I want to go take care of my investment properties. I'm a little too big for my britches, actually. The excuses begin to fly here, and the first one is, I got too many things that I'm in charge of. I don't need your grace. I can pick my own seat at the table. I can pick where I want to sit because I'm a big guy. I'm an awesome woman. Hear me roar. I'm a power player here on earth, and you better get out of my way, because I am rolling. Too slow, got to go. See you, bud. He had some property he had to go inspect. Hmm. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. And I asked you to have me excused. This guy's too busy. He's not a wealthy land speculator. He's got things he's got to go do. This is so important because he's kind of, you know, he's a working guy. He's a workaholic, you might say. Got some oxen, got a new yoke, need to go test them out. Got a new product line, brand new pyramid scheme, got a multi-level marketing thing I'm doing right now, but we haven't quite tried it out, so we got to go work on that. This guy was too busy buying. You got a guy that's too big for his britches, you got somebody that's too busy buying. And still another said, I have a, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. He's going on his honeymoon. Oh, come on, man, you're messing with the honeymoon? 
Now Jesus is making a point here. You can't be too blissful to not come to the king either. You see, there can be such great things, wonderful things, beautiful things, things that are even good. Even ordained of God things can be used for the wrong purpose. If your blissfulness gets in the way of your salvation, you are in trouble. If your buying gets in the way of understanding God's grace, you are in trouble. If your britches are too big and you cannot come to the king, you are in trouble. You see, each of these people had a central thing that they could focus on, and that was they had their reasons. They relied on their understanding, their law. And again, the Bible is not anti-intellect, by the way. But our minds are being renewed day by day into the image of Christ. And if you have parts of your mind that are unwilling to be redeemed because you're too focused on your blissfulness, you're too focused on your buying, you're too focused on your business or busyness, you're too big for your britches, then maybe you should be jealous of the person who's lame and blind, maimed, and poor. Because there's an interesting thing that happens when you're in need. And Jesus is going to address this. You see, when you don't have anything, everything seems to be a gift. You understand it properly. You recognize the work of the Lord in your life. And so he says, so that servant came and re reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out into the streets, to the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it has been done as you commanded, and still there's room. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The power of the God that loves you is expressed in the blood of the cross. God so loves us that he sent his only begotten son into the world that the world through him would be saved. He doesn't just save those who are busy. He doesn't save the already blessed because they're blessed. He doesn't save just the beautiful people. He saves the lost and the broken and the hurting and the dying. The people who have nothing. You see, he's near to those that are broken and of a contrite heart. The downcast he will not cast out. But sometimes our good things get in the way of remembering exactly who we are. You see, I don't deserve any seat at the table. I don't deserve any seat. I, I don't deserve his grace. 
I don't deserve his mercy. I don't deserve his forgiveness. Those things all come to me by faith in what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. He didn't say to the thief on the cross, you know, well, your sins are forgiven except. He didn't say to those that were standing and watching and mocking him, Father, forgive those who are thinking correctly. No, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He made a general call. He said, look, if, you, if you'll come to me, I'll not cast you out. All who come to me shall be saved. That's what the blood of Jesus does. It's not about having the best seat. It's about seeking the Savior. And the master said to the servant, verse 23, Go out the highways, the hedges, and compel them to come, that my house may be filled. You see, there's still room. That's what we do. That's the Great Commission. That's compelling people to come. It's like, come meet Jesus. We may be meeting outside, but you can still meet Jesus. We may not have it the way we want it, but you can still meet Jesus. We may want it to be differently, but you can still meet Jesus. You may think you deserve better, but at least you still have Jesus. It can always be worse, but you still have Jesus. Amen? Notice the warning, verse 24. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper. Now he's speaking to the ones that jockeyed for the best seats. Who looked for the preferential treatment because of what they did who sought their own way instead of the king's way. Now, I don't believe that there's any of you here that that's really in your heart. Maybe it is, and if it is, it's time for you to deal with that. But for the rest of us, if you'd peel off that top piece there and take out the bread... When Jesus was sitting at the table with the disciples, it's an interesting thing. He didn't say, <clears throat> Judas, you need to leave, dude. The same broken body that was broken for everyone who believed was actually broken for Judas, too. Jesus, I believe, loved Judas. He knew what he was going to do. Understood fully that, that Judas was who Judas was. But rather than expose Judas, he just simply said, it is he who dips his bread with me. And so maybe today, you haven't been where you need to be with the Lord. Can I just tell you the Lord loves you? The Lord loves you. He definitely wants you to change. He doesn't want you to stay the way you are, but he loves you. And so Jesus at that supper took the bread, and when he had broken it, he said, would you take and eat? 
for this is my body broken for you. Let's partake together. No qualification. He said, you believe, do this in remembrance of me. Then after the supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up and he prayed. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. Why was that important? Because the old covenant couldn't save you. It could point you to the new one. Because the blood of bulls and goats has never saved anybody. It just atoned. It put those things away to be dealt with at a later date. And Jesus comes along and he says, okay, it's done now. It's finished. So after supper, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the remission of sin, as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you. Lord, I personally thank you for giving me a seat at your table. I'm sure most are praying that right now, Lord, that we would be able to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb one day and sit down and feast with you because of what you did at Calvary's cross. Lord, today's been about you. These words are primarily your words. This scene was your story. And Father, we thank you for the power that that blood had to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe. And Jesus, we remember you. We honor you. We praise you. We thank you for what you did on the cross that will one day enable us to sit down with you at that great supper. Thanks for inviting us to dinner. Can't believe I get to come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.